Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. This evening, we're here to celebrate Sandra Allen and her new book, A Kind of Miraculous Paradise. (laughs) Sandra is a former BuzzFeed editor living in New York. She received an MFA from the University of Iowa's nonfiction writing program. A Kind of Paradise, A True Story About Schizophrenia is her first book. She'll be in conversation tonight with Amanda Chicago-Lewis, who writes about marijuana and the war on drugs with an emphasis on public safety, the influence of special interests, and the ways in which the documented racial disparities of drug law enforcement are being cemented into the details of legalization. She writes a bi-weekly column for Rolling Stone. The LA Times described A Kind of Miraculous Paradise as a bracing work of art and a loving tribute to a man whose voice, no matter how unpolished, deserves to be heard. And Bustle described the book as an honest, heartbreaking, and often humorous window into an experience of mental illness that many people often never get the chance to see through. We're delighted to have her here tonight to read and discuss A Kind of Miraculous Paradise with Amanda Chicago-Lewis. So please help me welcome both Sandra Allen and Amanda Chicago-Lewis. Um, I'm very grateful to Skylight. I'm grateful to everyone who's here. Please come take a seat. There's seats if you want, no pressure. Uh, Standing in the back is also great. Um, uh, Yeah, I'm I'm glad to be here sharing this book with you. Um, It's been out for a couple of weeks now, so this is the beginning, and it's really meaningful, you know, everyone who's taking time out of their lives to share this beginning with me. Um, and so I figure, because it's such a new book, it makes sense to start at the beginning. That way we can all be on the same page together. And then you'll be like so hooked that you'll have to read it. And then you'll go home. And even though you bought it here at a local bookstore, which is obviously the correct thing to do, you'll be like so moved you'll want to review it on Amazon, which I'm told is a very important part of my life now, is begging people to to write about this book on Amazon. So just so we're clear, that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why I got into this line of work. Um, all right, so without further ado, A Kind of Miraculous Paradise. Genesis. Late one hot summer night several years ago, I got a call from a number that wasn't in my phone. I had recently moved to the Midwest for graduate school and was at a party in someone's living room. I wouldn't usually answer such a call, but in recent days I'd met and given my number to a lot of people. I found a bedroom and shutting the door behind me, answered, Hey man, how you doing? It was my uncle, my mom's older brother, Bob. Though I couldn't tell you when we'd last spoken, I recognized his voice right away. Bob had been a teenager in Berkeley in the 60s, and his voice sounded stuck there. He sprinkled his sentences with, yeah, man, and right on, and far out. 
He laughed a lot. His was a wild, wheezing laugh. And given that he was a smoker, his laughs would often devolve into a loud hack. Hey, Bob, I said. I set my glass on a dresser and flicked on a light. He asked if I'd moved yet, and I said yes. Some relative must have told him that, and that I was studying writing. Hey, I wrote a book, man. I wrote the story of my life, he said. Is that right? He talked for a while. He asked for my new address, and without much thought, I gave it to him. I told him I had to go, though. Oh, all right, sorry, man, he said, and repeated several times. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks, man. It was unclear what he was thanking me for, or what I had agreed to do. It's totally fine, I said, and hanging up, quickly forgot about the conversation altogether. <clears throat> I didn't know my uncle well. The most time I'd spent around him had been when I was a kid, in the 90s. I'd grown up just north of San Francisco in a little enclave of aging hippies on the coast, and most of the rest of my mom's family lived about an hour away in the East Bay. Bob's house was somewhere else, somewhere I'd never been. Sometimes Bob would be at my grandfather's house when we went for Christmas. In the summer, my grandfather would fly us all out to his vacation place in northern Minnesota, and sometimes Bob would be there too. <clears throat> the property had a main lodge in its center, and an old tennis court and a dock. Little sandy paths ran through the birches, connecting everything together. The single-family cabins were each named after a different tree. When my parents, my little brother, and I joined, we stayed in a cabin with a sign beside its screen door that read Pine. Bob was single and didn't have kids. He didn't often water ski or swim or play tennis. He'd mostly sit off to the side, in the shade, wearing long sleeves and jeans, sometimes a vest. His hair was long and blonde beneath a dusty cap, and he wore glasses. He smoked all the time, mostly cigarettes, but sometimes a pipe that smelled like wood and cherries. He didn't sleep in a cabin like the rest of us, but in the lodge, in, up a dark, our dark staircase, I don't remember ever ascending. Bob was a musician, and he knew I liked to sing. In the evenings, before the bell in the lodge was rung for dinner, I'd hear him playing guitar through our cabin's screen. I'd go sit beside him. I'd fiddle with the moss on the cement step, and Bob would strum, and we'd try to figure out what to play. We didn't know many of the same songs. Sometimes we just took turns describing those we did know. Sometimes he just played, or I just sang. Sometimes we made up songs together, songs that were absurd or funny to either or both of us. If you'd asked me then, that would have been my main opinion about my Uncle Bob. He was hilarious. One day, Bob and I were buckled into the back seat of a rental car waiting for someone to drive us into the town nearby, probably to play miniature golf and get ice cream. From his pocket, Bob pulled out a powdery plastic bag of pills. He removed one, held it up, and then chewed it with his teeth like steak. He laughed like he wanted me to laugh too, so I did. He produced another pill and did the same. Several pills later, the ritual was finished, and he put the bag away. Something was frightening about this. Why are you taking pills? I asked. It's noon. Gotta take pills at noon, he said, and grinned. I smiled back. Later, I found my mom. She spent her days down on the dock, wearing sunglasses and a big hat, killing mosquitoes and horseflies with a pair of swatters. Why does Bob take pills at noon? I asked. The lake's water stank in the midsummer heat. 
Because he's crazy, she answered. Why? I think Dad sent him to military schools after the divorce or something, she said, and he got messed up in there. My mom is a shy woman, and this was the kind of topic that made her face redden and voice fall. He'd call us fairly often back then. Hi, Bobby, my mom would sigh when she'd realize it was him. She'd pace around with the phone to her ear, muttering, uh-huh, or yeah, too polite to hang up, but also not that interested. Eventually, she'd say she had to go, that she was busy, which was never a lie. Sometimes she'd hand me the phone. He'd say, hey, Sandy, and launch right into talking about whatever was going on where he lived. A neighbor who kept bees, a friend who was going panning for gold. He'd talk about stuff he'd seen on TV. He'd ask me questions about my interests and schoolwork, and no matter what I said, he seemed really interested, saying, that right man and far out. He'd mail us cassettes of his music, which were labeled things like Hermit and March 96. His songs were low, sometimes very long and unvaried, always, his songs were long, sometimes very long and unvaried, always low and melancholy. Sometimes there'd be a noodling electric guitar or a synthesized drum beat or unintelligible vocals like someone yelling underwater. Sometimes he'd share a new song by playing it into our answering machine. Occasionally he ran out our tape. He'd leave comedic monologues on our answering machine, too. Ones performed as a duo of characters he'd created by recording his voice and then either speeding it up or slowing it down. The first character was called the Slow Man. His messages always began, Hello, this is the Slow Man. The fast-talking character was called Timothy Headache. (laughs) Timothy Headache usually wanted something to sell you a car or be elected to office. His messages would screech real fast. Hey, oh boy, this is Timothy Headache, and wow, have I got a deal for you. In fourth grade, I'd perform imitations of both the slow man and Timothy Headache to my friends at recess. I referred to their creator as my crazy Uncle Bob. What crazy meant... I wasn't exactly sure, and the fact that I didn't understand it bothered me. As a child, I often quizzed the adults I knew about their pasts, and back then I'd ask my mom fairly often about her brother, about what happened to him and why, about, their pa- about why their parents had divorced and why Bob lived just with their father after the divorce while my mom and her sister lived with their mother. My mom didn't seem to know answers to these questions. She didn't like talking about her past, often saying she had a bad memory. My mom, whose family called her Debbie, had been the baby, four and five years younger than Bob and their older sister, respectively. She was quiet, like her dad. My sense was that, as her family split apart over the course of the 60s, few paid her much mind. I picture her. Little pretty Debbie with her milky hair running by and out of view. Her explanation about her brother, something about a military school, remained unsatisfying. She remembered going to see him in the hospital. It was creepy, she said. Guys in pajamas smoking cigarettes strung out. When I was a little older, she admitted that whatever happened to Bob may have had to do with drugs. 
At some point, Bob stopped joining us on those vacations to Minnesota. I don't know that I noticed his absence all that much. We stopped going too when I was in middle school. Eventually, he stopped driving down for Christmas, though again, I didn't much notice. And at some point, his calls mostly stopped, maybe because we got better at not answering. On holidays, though, Thanksgiving or one of our birthdays, he'd call in the morning. First thing, the phone would ring, and my mom would say, that's Bobby. The idea of going to visit Bob never came up during my childhood. A few times a year, we'd drive to the East Bay to see my mom's other relatives. For a long time, I figured he must have just lived too far away. Later, I realized this wasn't true. His house was only about three hours north, near the Oregon border. Once when I was about 16, my mom and I even passed near to where he lived and we didn't stop to see him. I felt bad. And a few years later, when another opportunity came up to drive by, I decided I would. I was road tripping with a couple of friends across the country in their two cars, which they wanted back at school, and realized our route would take us right near Bob's house. I dug up his number and asked if it'd be all right if some friends and I stopped by to see him the next day. He sounded so shocked and thrilled. As we sped up I-5 the next morning, I contemplated this decision I had made to go see my uncle. I had no idea what what his house would be like or what state it would be in. I couldn't remember when I'd last seen him. I apologized to my friends in advance for whatever happened. We could stop at Wendy's or something after, I said. I'd buy them lunch. Off his exit were mostly parking lots. Plastic trash wafted on chain link fences. We continued out into the country where the hard red earth was dotted with occasional houses and oak trees. Finally, off a long unpaved road, I spotted his five-digit address. His home was modest and painted brown and not as ramshackle as I might have guessed it would be. It was August and so hot our tires swelled. We parked in front. Bob walked out, as did his two dogs, both girls. They, cur they circled us, curious and shy. I had failed to mention that we'd be arriving in two cars. This fact really caught him off guard. Driving up here, I thought you were the CIA, man, he exclaimed several times. I explained what was going on, and he got it and laughed, shaking each of their hands. He was rounder than I had remembered. We hugged briefly, and as we separated, I was startled by how much his face looked like my mom's. We followed him into his space. It was dark inside. The blinds were drawn, and it stank. It stank like someone had sat inside smoking cigarettes for 25 years. The walls were as yellow as his teeth. A television was talking loudly to itself. My friends and I sat in a, bit, in a row across his peeling faux leather sofa. Bob lowered himself into a big chair. I realized his bed was also in the living room right behind his chair. In one motion, he lit a cigarette and looked at each of us, seemingly overjoyed we had come. He started showing us things. This is a new television, he tapped its top. I had the old one on for about 20 years, and it finally died. Don't worry, I got this new one within the hour. He laughed, and we all laughed, and he coughed. He next wanted to play us a song, a track he'd recorded. It was like the ones he used to send us, low and slow, with guitar and drum machine and words I couldn't understand. We sat listening, and he stared at us. 
One of my friends was also a musician and thought Bob might want to hear a song he had recorded himself recently. He took out his iPod and plugged it into the stereo while Bob muttered he'd never heard such a, he'd never seen such a thing. Bob looked impatient while my friend's song played. In a corner of the ceiling, hanging on a fishing line, was a model of Han Solo's Millennium Falcon. The cobwebs clinging to it were thick and orange as coral. My friend realized that Bob might at least like his new tattoo, given that he liked rock music. It was John Lennon's self-portrait from the cover of Imagine, he explained, rolling up his sleeve. Bob leapt back in horror. Whoa, man, don't show me that thing, he yelled. The government tracks us with those things, he pointed at me. Never get one of those. You promise me, Sandra? Okay, I said. <laughs> Next. I never said I was a reliable narrator, guys. <clears throat> Next, he wanted to show us his recording studio. As we followed him down the short hallway, he pointed out a framed poster hanging in his bathroom, a wolf on a cliff beneath an oversized moon. Isn't that something, man? He asked me. His toilet bowl was stained a dark brown. Yeah, I said. The studio occupied what appeared to be the house's bedroom. It was filled with guitars and amps and keyboards and other equipment, all coated with a thick layer of dust. He pointed to a certificate tacked on the wall, something about welding. It had never occurred to me that Bob might have had a job. He pointed to another piece of paper in a frame, something about the military. I'm a veteran, he said, which didn't sound to me like it could possibly be true. He began turning on all his equipment, and as he did, the anticipatory buzzing in the room grew and grew. Everything was already turned on as loud as it could go. He looked at us and grinned, and when he depressed a single key, the whole place quaked as if we were in the belly of a great laughing beast. Afterward, we sat on his back porch. It was hot enough to make you sick. He served a shrimp that had been arranged on a black plastic tray by someone at a supermarket and a box of wheat thins. I felt terrible that he'd gone out of his way to buy us these things, and I thanked him. We looked out at his property, the dirt, the wisps of blonde grass, the coyote bushes and oak trees. We complimented it, and Bob told us about his neighbors and his irrigation lines in front, which fed a couple of saplings. After a while, my friends walked with Bob back toward the cars. I lagged behind. As I came down the small step off the porch, I felt the wood break beneath me, and stopping myself from falling, turned back to see the stair dangling like a child's tooth. I could hear Bob and my friends talking on the other side of the house. I hastened to join them, deciding not to tell Bob what had happened. It was clear the step had been bound to break, and it seemed he didn't often go outside anyway. We had to get going, I told myself, and I didn't want to get into a whole thing with my uncle. Bob and I hugged goodbye. My friend took a picture of us standing side by side. My friends and I got into our cars. Bob and his dog returned inside his house. We drove back out of town and away. Countless times since, I've thought about how content I would have been to remain knowing only that much about Bob. Thank you. I'd like to invite, thank you.
I'd like to invite Amanda Chicago Lewis to join me. Hi, bud. Hi, bud. Oh, it's such a pleasure to listen to you read. I could have just sat there and like, let's just do the whole book. Like, let's do that. Yeah. Um, you feeling into it, California? Let's go. <laughs> Pulling Andy Kaufman. Just You're just <laughs> such a good reader. Thanks. Um, so I first read Sandy's book a little less than a year ago, and I devoured the entire thing in less than 24 hours. And as I told Sandy shortly after it, I felt like I was sort of rediscovering what it is that I really liked about reading as a child, like the first learning to like what reading is. So um, this is a really great read. If you haven't already read it, I'm just going to strongly recommend it right now. Um, my questions are on my phone. I'm not like texting someone right now. Um, and I, <laughs> I came into Sandy's process <laughs> on this book about the moment when she sold the book, which was a couple years ago. And so I, in addition to it being a huge joy to hear you read, it's also just a huge joy to see this as a physical object in the world that other people can experience. Yeah. Um, so I have many questions, some of which I already sort of know the answers to, but perhaps you guys this don't. This is for you guys. So. <laughs> and this is for you guys. The photograph of you and Bob that you took when you guys, when you stopped by on the road trip? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. But yeah. No photos in the book. No I there 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 are well probably money, but they're like you know pictures made of words. <laughs> but I'll talk to Amanda and then we'll uh, we'll we'll do some audience Q and A after after she and I talk for a bit. So okay, so you know you talk a lot about you know when you were a child, what did the word crazy mean? And I think that that's a really interesting sort of flashpoint in a lot of the conversations we've had over the past couple years, and I think a lot of the things that seem to me to have potentially changed for you, certainly since you were a child, maybe since you started um, working on this project. I guess, could you talk even just a little bit about the word crazy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that this is a book, you know, about schizophrenia, right? That they, they made me put that on the cover, and I feel I, I tried to write a book that lives up to that promise. And I, when I went looking uh, to try to figure, you know, because I, I got this basically what happens next is I do get into a whole thing with my uncle. Um, that spoiler alert. Um, but he mailed me his life story, and this book is, uh, is my rendition of his story. Um, and it's also in a second font, my my essay about that and and that's the the opening of which I've just read to you and um when I received Bob's manuscript initially, I knew nothing about these topics, right? Like I, uh, and then when I was on the, about five years later, when I had the contract from the publisher and they put a, you know, a, a, a subtitle on it about schizophrenia, you know, I, I was at the time just like, oh my gosh, who am I to write a book about schizophrenia? Like my qualifications to do so is that I'm a hermit's niece who got a story and, you know, has been writing that story down. And I had, I had done, like, I had definitely tried to learn. I'd, I'd read books, I'd, I'd gone to the library, I'd, I'd begun really trying to understand better. But what I found was, while it becomes difficult to say certain things about um, schizophrenia, a biological disease, it is easy to talk about schizophrenia, the word, to talk about, you know, to, so Bob on his manuscripts cover um, wrote, this is a true story of a boy coming of age in Berkeley, California in the 1960s and 70s who was unable to identify with reality and therefore labeled a psychotic paranoid schizophrenic for the rest of his life. And that word, label, um, you know, over the years I, I began to realize, well, 
it's it's definitely a label. It's definitely it's a it's a it's a word that um, you know a professional class of people psychiatrists tell other people this is what you are schizophrenic. So while there is a big fight about the status of this hypothesized illness, there's definitely a very real social condition which is the schizophrenic. You know a person who's put into that cast. And over the years that I spent reading my uncle's manuscript, I mean that was definitely one of the things he was seeking to be heard on in writing down his life story and mailing it to me. Um, and the other, I mean, I think that over the years it began, it, 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 I realized like it's important that um, more of the public, including folks who don't know a lot about this stuff, are brought into these conversations. That not only should, you know, we maybe have the opportunity to hear from Bob on Bob, which is what, what I hope my book is doing, but it's also putting his story into these other contexts in terms of, you know, there's a lot of people who feel very strongly that this is, um, an important, uh, this is a real valid disease category and that it's important that we raise awareness about mental illnesses, which are literally illnesses akin to bodily illnesses. Like, people believe that as strongly as my uncle believed that this was just, you know, schizophrenic was a bigoted label that had been slapped on him. Um, and I think I sought to figure out in the course of this book how to just kind of let uh, a general audience in particular know about some of the fights that have been going on for a long time because that's what struck me was the difference between for example yeah what I was told about my uncle as a kid and then what I began to learn about him through reading his story but also through reading the history of what's gone going on around you know that category that label that he was given yeah um, and so, you know, you did so much research around mental illness, and I feel like your understanding of this is so much, I guess, deeper and almost more balanced than most people's, I think. And I guess I'm curious, how do you think, I mean, policy changes are one thing, something that feels very much out of our control sometimes, but I think a lot of us have people in our lives who um, experience mental illness and we've been touched by mental illness in a very personal way. I guess, what do you think are some um, behavioral changes, maybe like society-wide behavioral changes that you would love to see come out of people reading this book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think there's a lot, you know, I think that Bob, the thing, the thing about this book is like, I'm its second author, you know, it started with someone else and I'm trying as hard as I can to translate that work into a form that I hope more, more people will be willing to engage with because what I found initially when I just tried to quote him faithfully and kind of just put it out that way, you know, people weren't necessarily willing to read it or engage with it or listen to it and then over the years it sort of grew this exoskeleton of me handing my reader what's hopefully more context to hear this story and to hear its messages. Um, and I think one of the super big lessons that I've learned certainly in the in the whatever eight, eight, nine years I've been trapped in this project um, is I think it's really crucial that those of us who do not identify personally with Bob's story, meaning you've never been tossed in a psychiatric ward and had the door locked and you've never been injected with antipsychotics and told you're schizophrenic now, right? As long as you've never lived that, I think that those of us who are fortunate to have never had that experience need to listen 
to those who have had that experience, especially on a social level, on the level of the society, when it comes to what good, adequate mental health care should consist of and look like. Because I think for a very long time, folks who, uh, a, a lot of us live in, in ignorant bliss of what the psychiatric system can be, right? What, like the trauma that it can induce beyond whatever put a person in that position. And I think that my project hopefully, you know, explains some of the context of what was going on in Bob's life when he was initially hospitalized and so on. But what I found over the years was I became less interested, for example, in questions like, oh, what is the genetic, um, what's the genetic identity of this schizophrenia diagnosis? Or what, wh why does this antipsychotic work? Um, which are the questions that, you know, overwhelmingly research dollars are spent on questions like that. Um, in, and I became more interested in why is it that when I, as a hermit's niece, having received this project, curious about schizophrenic, went to the library to learn about it, I only found the points of view of doctors. And in fact, I only found the points of view of doctors who were sort of professionally opposed to the idea of giving my uncle full space in this conversation. And so I think over the years, I drifted from seeing this project as being a science book and more as being a book about civil rights, about human rights. And, 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 I, and I, I think I always sensed as a kid that there was something off about the fact that there was clearly two castes even within my own family um, between this this person and the rest of us and I think I sensed that it wasn't wasn't right, but I, I certainly didn't have any vocabulary for that. And I certainly am also a product of our bigoted culture, right? Like I I believed and felt and said all kinds of stuff before I got this book, you know, from my uncle and sort of began the journey of first understanding it and then trying to author this book, um, which was like a whole separate project and involved a lot of work and figuring things out and also figuring out like, what can I say here to people that I won't get in the way of telling my uncle's story? And I think that 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 meant I really had to understand his arguments. And the thing was, when I really started, I don't know, hearing those arguments and hearing those from others and getting to spend time with people who are, you know, alive right now and, and working on this stuff and living this stuff and really getting to communicate with human beings who have gone through things like what my uncle's gone through and hearing them and trying to figure out, like, what do I want to present to the public? You know, I think that's the main thing. I think we have to begin listening to Bob, proverbially speaking. Like, we, the people of, you know, and this is a term from the book, it will, but like we the people of Anadonia have to start listening to the people of Ishmael. That's like the big takeaway. Um, and I think that sometimes folks, it's very easy to just think on the level of the individual. Well, my sister could never like write our public policy. Sure, right? Like it's not about that. It's about having a society that is open to listening to all people and is actually creating where it's possible for someone to receive, you know, for example, help during a time of profound crisis that is helpful and not further traumatic and 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 at least in my experience so far and, and trying to really figure out yeah what should we do instead like what's a better way you know it's often situations where individual people are not being deprived of their humanity that they're able to overcome something that's really tough it's when they're in a situation where they're they're given the opportunity to go through something or to heal or to be around others who understand or other people who also hear voices or other people who've also had a spiritual emergency or you know and I think I've had the opportunity to just get to see some some of what else has been going on. And it's just a matter of, I think the public just hasn't been hearing the full story. You know, I think the public has been 
receiving, um, uh, you know, a, a set of ideas that have been bought by somebody. And um, so it just, it, it struck me as, oh, Bob's book is an opportunity, I think, to at least just raise the volume on some of these conversations because what I found was, you know, there are people who know this stuff. They know it really well. They're talking, but who's listening, you know? And, and I think they were often, that, that was one of the things I was noticing. And I was like, well, in this, um, and not, you know, some people are certainly listening, right? This has been happening. I arrive, you know, just amidst a wave that has already been crashing. But, um, you know, this, this book being narrative and being something that people seemed willing to engage with, I thought, well, this is an opportunity to try to talk to them about schizophrenia. Um, and over the years, I think I kind of got the nerve up to actually like be this book's author, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it was helpful when I'd have, you know, a friend a year ago or, you know, two years ago, or I mean, you know, it's been a long time, but like when someone would read the whole thing new and would tell me, oh, I read it. And, and, and I would hear the fact that, that they'd heard, you know, some of what I intended them to hear. And that would just be this like breath of wind into my weary sails <laughs> as I sort of drifted along trying to figure out how to ever end up with something between two covers. Yeah, and I certainly feel like reading the book felt like listening to Bob, which very much leads into my next question. So this is a nonfiction book, but as Sandy sort of implied, there are two parts to it, one of which is really told from Bob's perspective, right? Is in first person, third, and it's third, third person, right? It's, but it's essentially, right, yeah, in the air. But it's, it, it feels like first person. But it's it it's Bob's perspective, and it's essentially you almost taking on the persona of your uncle. And so, as as a journalist, as a fellow journalist, but as someone who would not be capable of writing what you wrote, I, I, I was reading it for pleasure, but also was thinking to myself, where did she get this piece of information? Where's the footnote on this? Where, where did this come from? And I wanted to know if you could talk to us a little bit about your process of sort of inhabiting. Bob and how you sort of figured out what to include and what not to include. Yeah, yeah. So I, I worked on the project for about eight years. The first five were spent um, just writing the story. Um, and the, I never did it because I thought it would be a book. I was, I don't know, I was a writer, I was a creative person. I sort of had this thing and I was figuring out how to how to make it, I think. And it was just an interesting problem to sort of sit with, like these, this stack of pages and then my Word document. Um, and I, uh, over the years, I, the, the, the thing I had found was people were willing to listen to the story if I wrote it well. Um, and that's really silly sounding, but that was true. Like if I just made prose that was interesting to read, people would engage with it. So as nonfiction writers, you know, especially kind of literary nonfiction writers, what do we have in our toolkit? We have dialogue, we have scene, we have um, description, we have figurative language, we have, you know, these kinds of things. So I, I, I viewed Bob's um, all capital pages as sort of the bouillon cube from which I built this soup, you know, or it was like the treatment from which I wrote the screenplay. It was a more concentrated dose that I was sort of letting breathe, and I was making decisions about how to structure it, how to pace it, and, and I, but really what I would do is I would study Bob, and then I would turn to mine, and I would try to figure out how to communicate a feeling. And the metaphor I use in the book for what the book is, is, tr is I, I, there's the word translation, on the jacket, but in the book what I use is cover, as in music. 
And I like that metaphor because I think it gives me a longer lead, um, just in terms of the, the, the room I have to wiggle. Um, but also because I think part of what I'm up to in sort of uh, setting scene, making, making things full, isn't that I'm inventing details. And in fact, as much as possible, gosh, I'm just trying to really look at what Bob's given and, and give it to my reader. Um, but it is giving myself room to sort of express and to communicate the sense of Bob's story because that was one of the things that I found when I read it. Like, I'm in the family. I know these people. I know this geography. I know the vernacular. I sort of knew Bob's sense of humor, for example. And there was a lot just kind of in the feeling of what he wrote that I was like, I have to figure out how to communicate this across too. Like, the movie I see in my mind when I read Bob's story, that's what I've given to you on the page. Um, and I think part of it too is just, and ultimately, like, and I write this in the book, like, I'm the executor here. I made decisions. I decided what belonged and what didn't. You know, I had editors working with me for about two full years, and a lot of what they were doing was cutting, 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 you know, and I think part of that is because I did want a book that someone could get on a plane and read it. I really wanted a book that people were going to start and finish. I, I wanted them to hear the whole story, and so it felt like a lot of the time my job, and I used to be an editor, so this, you know, was kind of natural to me. Let's cut it back and cut it back and figure out how lean can we get this thing? Because figure, folks don't have a lot of time. We've got more interesting things to do. You know, reading books is boring, etc. You know, I want you to read this thing Harry Potter fast. Like, I want you to just have to motor through it, right? Um, and so figuring out over the years how to tune the writing itself and, and figuring out especially how to get those, those interstitial bits, the part where I'm coming in and kind of giving context about the family or the period or the, the diagnosis, you know, make sure that those didn't get in the way of really the point of the thing, which is to tell this story. Yeah. All right, I've got one more question. And Love I'm also it. now realizing that all my questions are like, I don't understand how you did this because I couldn't do it. <laughs> I don't understand how I did this. So it's cool. It's Bob. Bob made me do this. <laughs> but certainly another one of the really interesting things about the um, reading the book and also just about hearing your experiences uh, as a friend uh, was just how, you know, sort of unsparingly and like uh, deeply you decided to go into your family history hmm. and sort of excavate what had happened. Hmm. Um, you know, and it's one thing to do that with someone else's family. It's another thing to do that with your own family. Yeah. Um, can Don't you... recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that was, you know, are, are there things that you can talk about in terms of how you decided what to keep private and what not to keep private? Yeah. Um, and maybe about what it's like to go through that process in such a personal way uh, and maybe if anyone has a similar project <laughs> advice on how to handle that. <laughs> get, get yourself a good therapist. <laughs> like, um, take care of yourself. I, I, I mean, that's not even a glib response. Like, I think this was challenging. This was challenging to write in a lot, for a lot of reasons, but that was definitely one of them. As I describe in the, in the book, my uncle didn't, like, ask anyone's permission to write a tell-all. Like, ex if anything, his, his manuscript, when I first read it, in this sense, was often backed up when I did kind of report his story out. Like, his manuscript was very honest. And I think that was part of the that was part of the deal. He was telling a true story, and I, I think he was laying his life bare, and that included parts about himself that were very ugly, and that included stuff about other people in the family. And so, when I initially read it, that was certainly one of the things, one of the reasons that I was just like, I would never help him do this, because that was my first reaction. I was like, I will never help him do this, um, and that was certainly because I was like, this is full of like secrets about the family. I would just be, you know, like. I wouldn't serve.
survive this. So it, I can't even contemplate it. And um, but I think part of that was just on my part, kind of cowardice and like failure of imagination. I didn't yet really see what the point of it all was. Um, the 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 task of you know when the when there was a when it was going to be a book, it really fell to me to be the ambassador of this story kind of to the family and to figure out all the time what the best call was in terms of like, yeah, you know, do I make concessions? Do I, or concessions? Do I, you know, do I, um, uh, and, and as much as possible, I really tried to uh, adhere to sort of a dual um, dictum that, that Bob gave me. Uh, we had spoken on the phone soon after he mailed me his manuscript, and he said, you know, I, I was very hesitant to him. I, I was like, I was frank with him. Like, you know, books are, you can't just get a book published, right? Like, I, I wasn't like, oh, I'm a writer, so I'll just go knock on, you know, Mr. Mr. Book, we've got one. Like, I don't know. I have no idea how. So I was just honest with him. Like, you know, don't you think it's probably not a good idea to try to do this? Because, like, there's a lot of personal stuff in here. And I think what I said was, you know, there's stuff in here you wouldn't want everyone on earth seeing. And he had said, he, you know, he agreed, he, but he had said um, he wanted to get it out there, to get the story out there, because it was true. And he said, I just don't want to hurt my dad. And his dad is a big character in his story. His dad is who drives him to the psych hospital that first day. I mean, his dad is, in some sense, is a villain, but he's also not. You know, and the deeper I read his story, of course, it's really much more complicated than that. And he loved his dad a ton, and his dad supported him through so much just unbelievable crap. And so, you know, I've tried very hard to publish something that ultimately kind of does both. It is out here. It is true. Like, it's nonfiction. I didn't change my name. Thought about it. Um, but it's important that this is a true story. I think it's really a central bit of this is that this is a book that's being submitted to the category of nonfiction because I think that nonfiction needs to be broad enough to include this. Um, at least that's my contention. And then it also, you know, I tried as much as possible to figure out hurt his dad, which, you know, I, I mean hurt anybody in our family, anybody that, you know, none of these folks asked to be in this story. Um, and I always tried very hard to be thoughtful about is this just going to hurt someone more than it's going to help the story? And I made calls about what stuff I just figured couldn't be in here. Um, and, and part of that is that I couldn't have this book hurting anybody so much that they then, you know, I, I, I wanted as much as possible for this to be something that people who were in it could support. Um, and I think that's optimistic, but that was still what I wanted because I, I figured that, you know, folks would ultimately see that this was something Bob had begun and, and I'm just kind of finishing it for him. And folks in the family, of course, love him. And I think a lot of them, and a lot of them say this now to me explicitly, like, they, they're they happy that this this person who they knew was misunderstood in life is being shown to the world in, in, a, in a more correct fashion. So it's it's been really beautiful to have the support of, of, of my family. Sandy. Yeah. I just admire you so much. Thanks. I admire you too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's take questions. Does anyone have any questions? Is anybody still alive? He is not. I I'm probably gonna pause that kind of talk here. Yeah, I mean I think the book contains as much uh, on this as I wanna say. Um, but yeah, he, Bob Bob is not not with us anymore. Except I don't know, he was a big believer in heaven, so I figure he's he's hanging out and watching all this and laughing, yeah. For sure. I mean he lives forever in the book. Yeah, he does. Are you aware of the huge industry of exploitation around the people who have been imprisoned, especially in the council, where these people become pawns after the death of Big Mom or whoever holds the money to 
Yeah, I think in general, one of the things that, um, do I go into that specifically in the book in detail? No. But one of the things that I'm definitely doing in this book is hopefully like introducing to more of us to the fact that yes, there is an absolute, uh, there's a, a set of ideas that are legally entrenched that have a lot of um, money and professional clout behind them that ultimately I think do absolutely uh, just make a mockery of, of our constitution and of the rights that we should all have. And I think similarly, because we're so entrenched in this way of thinking, we fail to actually provide socially for one another if we are to experience trauma, if we are to experience um, mental or emotional distress. Um, and I think the, the definitely one of my hopes is that this is a book that will allow more people to realize that we are all um, caught up in the system as is constituted right now and that we all I think have an opportunity to try to figure out what what a better what a better system would look like but I'm, I'm definitely hoping that this is a project that will inspire people to um, continue reading and to maybe feel like this is a topic that they have permission to engage with because one of my senses was before I got my uncle's manuscript I don't know I definitely didn't think that this was something that related to me or that I needed to think of about. And in writing his story, I realized that that was, that was quite a misinformed opinion. I think also Sandy's going to be humble about this, but I can say Sandy read like a totally ridiculous number of books and studies and articles to inform this book. And when she's, you know, talking about that Harry Potter level of reading, <laughs> it really did get pared down to that to the point where it's probably very difficult to see when you're reading the book that there'll be one casual sentence and like Sandy read six books for that <laughs> sentence to be there. And I'm like not even overstating it. It's totally, it's bananas. And if you read the book and you love it, um, she published a reading list uh, with electric literature. Electric lit, yeah. yeah. With electric literature that is, you know, if you're like, I want to read more about this, yeah. I want to get a variety of perspectives on it. Yeah. Sandra Allen, electric literature, <laughs> Google it. <laughs> but it, yeah, definitely, you know, I, I, I think this should be a story I hope that some see as validating of, of their experiences with this topic, however they've intersected with this topic, but then also that folks who aren't already, um, aren't already caught up in it will be will be interested to engage with. Let's take a question or yeah. two more. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, I'm going to take this question. Yes, thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, I, uh, I was curious to know what else this, bit, this book is the process made you curious about. Yeah. And if, if anything, you know, was either not explored in the book or that you hope to continue on researching and writing about Definitely. Um, a lot, you know, and the cutting room floor is crowded. Like, there was a lot that I wasn't able to, to fit. Um, and I think that this book, in a sense, gave me a, a, a beat. It gave me a lot more I want to talk about. I definitely didn't begin this project, like, full of desire to write 
anything in particular, actually. And so I sometimes feel like my uncle, you know, in, in all the gifts he's given me here, he's given me kind of a career. It's 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 rather, it's incredible. Um, and one of those is definitely, um, uh, you know, particular ways in which I think I can continue to call attention to this situation. Um, there's a lot of stories that are just going to be deep dives um, that, that didn't get to be in here, but now I'm going to find someone to write about and, 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 and go that way. But also, um, I think in general, like this, this book, I think, talks to us about um, what's wrong. You know, I think it does, it, it, hopefully, it does a good job of setting up a problem. Here's a problem, you know. I think my uncle's story is an optimistic one, but I think he wrote it hoping to at least get our attention about a problem. And so what I found myself interested in, especially kind of reporting and research-wise in, in recent years, is like, what's a better way? You know, what, what's, what's out there? What's happening already on this earth? Because not everybody is living in America. Not everybody is living in a country with a for-profit healthcare system and perfectly legal pharmaceutical advertising and, you know, a, a federal, like, oversight that is being absolutely controlled by pharmaceutical money. You know, we've got a situation here that's very stacked against a lot of us, but that's actually not how it is all over the world, and so what's going on, you know, elsewhere? And so I've been, I've been um, definitely trying to figure out ways to continue to storytell in the space of, yeah, like, here's an example of someone who had a hard time, who had a hard thing, who heard a voice, who saw a vision, and who also lives a full and dignified life. Um, and where is that happening? Even in America, where is that happening? Because I think part of it is because there isn't like a madness beat in every paper and magazine, um, we're not necessarily told these stories in the proportion to the way that, you know, is in lived society, which is like lots of people are being affected by this stuff all the time. And if anything, we're encouraged towards silence. And there is, now it's in vogue to not be silent, but I do think that we get stuck um, on one level of understanding and it's important I think that we continue to push through and and um, allow ourselves to kind of let 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 folks who've really lived it take the lead in terms of what 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 should we make of, of times like this and how might we better provide for one another I promised you next oh, so you're welcome yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are both very very involved with uh, mental illness and mental health and my question is would you ever consider the design would you consider becoming a spokesperson for mentally? If somebody said, come and speak at my conference, would you consider doing that? I definitely want to know which conference. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that what the, you know, and I, you know, I, I think there is an extent to which I am someone who is speaking about this topic, and I am someone who is here because my uncle had me here. Um, I, I, um, I'm always wary of wanting to um, speak for, you know, like I think that what, what's important here and what I really hope my book does is continue to raise the point that I think these conversations need to be more populated by the voices of those who are generally, right now, systemically least included. Um, and that's really the point I kind of want to figure out how to make over and over and over to people. Um, because I think that it's a key one, and it's one that the longer I sat with this, the more I realized, like, I think this is part of this is part of the point um, of what, what Bob was up to in sending me his original book and, and wanting me to get it out there to the world. Should we do one more question? Yeah, I think we got one in the back. Yeah, and then we'll call it a, we'll call it a night. Yes. I haven't, no. It's really excellent. 
about the person with dual diagnosis or schizoaffective with the AA program is to be alcoholic. Oh, that's cool. You know, we think we used to be just like chained to a bed or something, you know. Yeah. And it's over, uh, it's actually like you take the four bus or go all the way out to Santa Monica, it's on second two blocks from Main Street or Ocean, which is uh, the bluffs, or, you know, the um, and it's a really good program. I mean, like Bill Clinton, Kobe Bryant, um, David Geffen are men supporting. Oh, that's awesome. It's still going on buying it sound like that, actually. I admit, I'm, I'm, I'm not as, be, like, I don't know Los Angeles stuff as well. But in, in I mean, in general, I think the, the yeah, I'm sorry, you, you were going to. Well, I'm pretty much, it's just really, I have a seven-year-old daughter, and, um, you know, she's doing very well with her mother. You know, we just separated almost two years ago. But step up on second, which has been a real lighthouse or a rock. Um, you know, I've been with the Hollywood men since they were, well, there's like a little uh, Latino evangelical Christian church in the Frank Lloyd Wright of Marsdale Airport, and that used to be the old Hollywood mental health clinic right there, and now it's over on Vine uh, and La Mirada. but I've been with them since 85, but my daughter's seven, and she was going to be born, I can't remember, step up in second, yeah. and they just built one on Vine Street. What do you like about it, can I ask? You know, the, the people kind of run the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm going to I'm going to come check it out. Yeah. I'll check it out. That's awesome. That's beautiful. And I'm also heard the National Alliance of Mental Illness. My friend um, Celine owns a little store, La La Lee, a few stores over, and she's always telling me, she has aunt, and that's like Al-Anon. You know, you're not an alcoholic, you have to live with one. And actually, I have to live with myself, so I wouldn't even <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, yeah, I think I, I definitely want to check that out. And I, I, you know, I, one of the things that's interesting has been um, spending time. Yeah. Well, I think that one of the points I would hope is that we, and I, I've spent time um, in, with an, uh, folks involved with an organization in Western Massachusetts that sounds not dissimilar from that, and I've, I've, I've spent time with them and, and kind of, you know, hanging out and watching what they're creating together, and like, part of what I think is that there should be one of these in every community. This should be something like a firehouse where it's just part of the world that we have somewhere safe to go 
show and that folks who are um, struggling with, you know, they've got a diagnosis, they've got they've got drugs they're supposed to be on, or they've got, you know, stuff in their lives, they've got addiction, they've got whatever, right? I think there should be good options for us when whatever happens to us, because one of the big points here is that, you know, not very much separates any of us from any of the rest. And like, we have no, there's no thing inside you that says, oh, genetically, you're going to not become this, or you're not going to, no, this is, this kind of stuff can happen to anyone, because life can happen to any of us. And, and I think it's really important that those of us who are living anywhere start to realize, oh, like, what are the options that are out there that are actually helping people and, you know, and figure out if this stuff matters to you, how do you support that in your community? I think let's leave it there. Yeah, Thanks, thank folks. Thank you so much, Sandy. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.